We're now live. We're now live. So welcome everybody um, to the Hamilton Wealth Partners uh, webinar this morning. And we've got a, again another special guest, it's Harry Cater. Harry doesn't need any introduction. I have um, sent to you all his bio plus um, the two papers, uh, Coming Full Circle and Coming Full Circle, the sequel. Um, and we'll just touch on those um, in a second. But I just do want to read, as we have in previous uh, webinars, a general advice for you. The information contained in this webinar has been provided as general advice only. The contents have been prepared without taking account of your objectives, financial situation or needs. You should, before you make any decision regarding any information strategies or products mentioned in this webinar, consult your advisor to consider whether it is appropriate having regard to your objectives, financial situation and needs. So thank you. I think that one thing that impacted me on the two papers that Harry wrote, it brought back to a conversation, uh, actually Ian Gillies and myself had with a fund manager about four years ago at a, at a dinner in Sydney. And he just put this fund manager pointed out he was born in 1970. He completed his secondary education in 18 years and then went straight out, completed his tertiary education in three years and entered the financial markets in 1991. And he pointed out therefore that anybody born in, in the 70s had never worked in financial markets in Australia as it had entered a recession. Well, guess what? Since then, everybody's been blooded, so to speak. Um, and that we're in a different environment and we need to look back at these experiences of what happens in a correction. And some of us, like Harry as well, we've worked offshore and been exposed to other corrections as they've occurred in Asia and things like that. Um, but these are unique times and we need to be looking back and from these experiences and what we've learned from them and trying to bring that into perspective. However, recognising that this is a different environment because this has been created by nature, not by man. Um, so with that introduction, I'm gonna hand over to Harry and just as a housekeeping matter, as we've done in the past, you'll see on the bottom, there's a toolbar. Please feel free to ask questions. And at the conclusion of Harry's um, talk, We'll then open up for those questions. So thank you very much, Harry. Welcome, and I'm going to hand over to you. Thanks, Will, and welcome to everybody. Um, and thank you so much for, for logging on and listening. Um, the I've been at this for 33 years, um, and I've seen several crises. Uh, the thing that always amuses me a little bit, if I can be amused, is whilst the players are always different, the tools are different, the sandpit tends to be the same, and the outcomes tend to be the same. Um, so you tend to get major market corrections, somewhere between 40 and 60%. Um, and the only thing that tends to vary a little bit is the duration um, of the, the, the crisis in terms of how long it takes you to sort of recover and get back to more stable times. Um, the other point I'd like to make is that each time the cost tends to go up. So I remember the first crisis I walked into was the savings and loan crisis in America in the middle 80s. Um, the initial forecast for that was about 25 billion. I think it ended up being about 250 billion. Um, so this time around, we've now got a significant um, interaction between the financial markets, governments and central banks. Uh, and as we've already seen, the intervention from the latter two uh, has really surpassed already the uh, interaction that occurred uh, through the GFC. 
Um, and the other thing to point out, which is a bit more scary, is that the frequency of these crises, crises tends to be increasing, a bit like the weather patterns. Um, as we disturb nature, so the weather patterns uh, have become more frequent and, and more severe. So there are three parts of, this, uh, of a crisis. There's the emotional side, there's the financial side, and there's the economic side. And, and I apologize up front if I appear in my comments to avoid the emotional side. Um, our job running money is to focus on the financial and economic. Uh, clearly, investor psyche is really important. Um, don't get me wrong, um, clearly our hearts and minds are out to all those who are suffering from this COVID virus, both from a health perspective and from a business perspective. Um, it's a, clearly a really traumatic time. Um, so uh, that uh, is, is something that we're very aware of. Uh, but in terms of trying to manage uh, assets, um, we have to look at the economic and financial uh, side. Um, so I've sort of phrased it today, um, you know, you've got to identify what's going on. Um, and I've used two words, which I'm borrowing from a podcast I listened to the other day. It's the great paralysis that we're going through, um, which is leading to radical uncertainty. Um, so what we have today is an event crisis as opposed to a structural crisis. So a structural crisis is more akin to say the GFC. This was something that started in the bank sector um, and really upended the whole banking system, particularly in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, the banking system was then regulated dramatically and patterns have changed. And structurally over 10 years, banks are looking very, very different today, particularly in the Northern Hemisphere than they are uh, were 10 years ago. Today is an event crisis. Nature, as Will said, has, has brought it upon us. However, the paralysis is a government-driven um, imperative. So because it's a government-driven imperative, um, it means that uh, the fiscal stimulus you've seen, the monetary stimulus that you've seen, is likely to be very reluctantly removed as we come out the other side. And that's a major positive, actually, and I'll come to that in a second. Um, but again, let's distinguish between an event crisis uh, and, and a structural crisis. Um, so we have a great paralysis, um, which is leading to radical uncertainty. And the thing about uncertainty is it cannot be priced. So risk models do not work in an uncertain environment. When assets always, uh, sorry, not always, when assets correlate to one, then risk models effectively blow up. So what we need now is a lot of judgment, a lot of intuition, and a lot of experience in order to determine how the world is going to react and how the world is going to cope with what is going on at the moment. So a few things that we can possibly look at and say with some degree of accuracy um, and perhaps certainty is that the globalization story is probably over. So what we've seen from this crisis is that supply chains are incredibly fickle. We've seen that there is a dominance in particular sectors with regards to who's supplying what. Small example, 80% of all the antibiotics used in the United States is sourced out of China. So that's a big feature that I think has been dominating the market in the last 20 to 30 years. That's now passed. The other point is that excessive debt positions, um, both at the private and at the government levels, they do three things. Um, and it has really been empirically proven to be the case. And that is one, they depress growth. Two, they lower productivity. And three, they lower the average income. 
Um, and so the sort of growth aspect and average income tend to sort of go hand in hand. The productivity issues uh, are less certain. That's the cat. I'll just introduce the cat very quickly that my daughter has just landed on my lap. So we'll just get rid of the cat. Do apologize for that. Um, so the global debt positions, um, they, they need to be taken really um, in terms of what is the long-term effect on the growth. Um, and it is gonna depress growth um, and it is gonna depress growth for an elongated period. Um, I was reminded that Maggie Thatcher told us when she was in power that we'd finally paid off in the UK the World War II um, war loans. So it sort of gives you a bit of a feel for the time frame that we are gonna go under in terms of um, paying off some of this debt that we're putting on today in order to stop the economies worldwide uh, really getting themselves in a pickle. Um, the next thing is that governments, I think, are going to start to move very quickly to look at the livelihood costs as against lives lost. So they're gonna be making a classic triage decision um, and they're gonna work out pretty quickly that actually we're gonna to need to get the economies back to work um, sooner rather than later, and there will be further loss of life. And uh, as was the case in the 1918-19 Spanish flu epidemic or pandemic, um, there were second and third waves. Um, so the key here is to watch out for um, what is the ability for the hospital system or the healthcare system to cope with the second and third waves. So if those second and third waves are such that the hospital systems can cope, then you'll see people back at work. Um, and you're gonna particularly see people back at work who are in their age range of under 60, um, because they seem to be the ones that are able to survive the virus. Um, and indeed, some people have actually sort of had it and they don't even know about it. Um, and at the same time, we've also got to make, uh, watch out for the fact that the testing is going to improve uh, and that someone is going to come up with a treatment plan very much like they did with AIDS. They haven't cured AIDS, but they put a treatment plan in that certainly lessens the impact um, and may stop you dying. And then ultimately there will be a vaccine that comes out. Um, and so those are the sort of steps, stepping stones that are fairly easy to identify and probably going to be ones that will then help sentiment towards the market uh, in terms of the economic movement uh, and, and regaining of confidence for people to actually sort of commit. Um, so the big issue that we've got to overcome is sort of from now until that point. Um, and this is where the judgment comes in. This is where the intuition and experience. So how deep is this, this sort of this paralysis going to be and how deep and long is it going to last in, in terms of the impact on company earnings? Um, and so uh, you have serious issues that are, are being brought to, to the forefront, that sort of classic when the tie goes out, who's wearing or not wearing any swimmers. Um, so there are going to be big question marks, I think, around uh, areas of the market, uh, which have traditionally, particularly in Australia, been a backbone to the sort of investment portfolio. Um, so if you just start with the classic with the banks, um, if you think about the banks, um, as Will mentioned, we haven't had a recession in this country for 30 years. Um, 30 years ago, uh, two of the main banks nearly went to the wall. In fact, they probably did go to the wall, but they sort of got saved by various recapitalization events. Um, so that today, the banks are very well capitalized, but what is going to be the impact on their earnings from, um, as the RBA said yesterday, unemployment rate being higher 
for longer, probably above 6% and for longer. Um, what is going to be the impact on property prices from the fact that here we are today, we're having a Zoom conference, people will be forced to work from home. Um, and so everybody's going to work out, do I need as much property space as I had before? Question mark. What's going to be the impact on the investment property market? Um, and thirdly, uh, in terms of, uh, if you look at the big pots of money in Australia, you've got the superannuation pot of wealth, you then have the property pot of wealth. Um, so if you're a government looking to, how do I raise funds in order to pay for the stimulus that I've already put into the system, um, you're going to be looking at those big pots of money to determine how do I actually get the biggest bang for my policy buck. So if you look at um, the property side, you've already seen New South Wales and Victoria to openly discuss moving away from stamp duty towards a land tax on all housing. Um, so, you know, what is that going to mean in terms of people's attitude towards property and particularly within the investment property market, question mark. So we're just busy assessing that uh, at the moment in terms of, you know, some of the issues that you need to get ahead of in terms of the outcomes of, of this crisis. So there's, a, there's, a, there's a, the bank sector, you've then got the travel sector, which is pretty obvious in terms of the impact that's been uh, occurring. Uh, you have the health side, you know, what's it mean for hospitals? Um, yes, we've seen elective surgery uh, come back, but at the same time, what is gonna be the impact on their profitability um, if more and more of their space in the shorter term is taken up by dealing with the COVID virus and other related viruses? Um, you then move through to um, the, the likes of um, the uh, infant formula market that seems to be still booming, which is a positive. Um, and the other positive I want to throw out there, which is politically not very correct, is that so far only 99.998% of the world's population has been infected. Um, so it, it, you can see that it's less, it's about two basis points of the world's population has been infected and substantially less have actually died. So again, this sort of leads back to the positive angle in terms of you know, what's going to happen with the, the road to, out of this virus in terms of the governments, I think, are going to be quicker to move people um, back into the workforce, back into their housing, uh, sorry, into their, into their jobs at work um, and back into normal activity than people are currently forecasting. Um, so if you think about if you're, a, if you're a family with some young children at home, um, you'll probably want to get them back into childcare or school sooner rather than later. Um, so again, there's some beneficiaries around uh, that type of, of activity. Um, the other positive news on a long-term perspective um, is that if you keep uh, the nominal GDP growth rate above your 10-year bond yield, your nominal 10-year bond yield, this is a sort of slight technicality, but if you think about a growth rate above your, co your current cost of money, um, then that is a, a long-term sort of get out of jail free card for governments. Now, my view is that the central banks around the world have already worked this out and that is what they are going to be pushing towards on a longitudinal view. And that means that interest rates are gonna stay lower for longer. But again, the downside to that is that actually lower interest rates beget lower returns. So again, I think in terms of how you run money in this environment, um, the traditional angle has been, you tend to sort of set and forget in inverted commas. Um, you might have your standard exposure to equities, both here and overseas. You might have a standard exposure to property. 
Um, I think actually you've now got to become much more tactical. You're going to need uh, a tactical um, attitude and a tactical philosophy in terms of how you run money um, in order to take advantage uh, of deep movements in the market, whether they're up or down, um, as, as, because I think the, the degree of volatility is going to stay with us. You might have thought that it's, um, it's been high. I think it's going to stay high. Um, and I think you're going to need to be more tactical in the way that you manage money. Um, just because the world is changing, um, we are going to definitely change the way we operate and therefore who, who is going to be impacted, uh, yes or no. Um, and that's going to be a tricky um, equation to manage on an ongoing basis. So you need to be more tactical, in my opinion. Um, I may be proven wrong. Um, but uh, as, as well as having a, a strategic uh, exposure to particular areas. Um, also, I feel very strongly that you're going to need to look at the traditional settings within sectors, both here and overseas, uh, and they're going, to, they're going to need to be adjusted because, again, some of the stalwarts of the past are not going to be the stalwarts of the future. Um, it's going to be something where the world is going to change quite dramatically in specific areas, uh, and you're already seeing it in terms of the way that the human race is adapting. There's definitely going to be winners and losers um, from, from the COVID-19 crisis. Um, so the other positive news I want to focus on today is the credit markets, because the GFC was marked by a complete freezing over of the credit markets. Um, so the credit markets today are very much alive and well. So you're seeing a lot of companies issue debt um, into the market. You're seeing the credit spreads, i.e. the measurement between your, your five-year uh, government bond, for example, and a five-year corporate piece of paper. Um, they've been uh, okay. They've been a bit whippy, but they're not blowing out nearly as badly as they have in the GFC, and they're settling down pretty fast. And it's interesting to see that a lot of central banks around the world have clearly identified this as an area of concern, and so they're busy buying into that space in order to control that spread. So they're, they're, they're very keen to keep the cost of money for corporates at a, at a level that is affordable and not completely madness, um, as you saw in the GFC. I mean, the exception, of course, is the oil market and the energy space. Again, it just never ceases to amaze me how really simple, simple things are just missed, um, particularly in the, in the, in, in the structured product markets. Um, the, the reason why you've seen this chaos in the oil market is because um, the oil market, indeed all commodity markets, are physical delivery. So if you hold a futures contract um, in a particular commodity, uh, you have to deliver into it. So if you're an ETF, you're clearly not going to be storing oil. Um, so you have all of these ETFs that are linked to the oil price and they're linked to the oil futures contract, and they suddenly got themselves in a mess. So you saw this complete dislocation in the oil markets overnight. And the sad thing about it is that for oil companies and drilling companies and people linked to the energy markets, this is nothing to do um, with them short term. Clearly the crisis has caused a significant site supply demand imbalance. Um, so you've got a chronic oversupply of oil, but this stuff of driving the oil price down to negative $40 is simply a technical issue that is being created by, in this case, a couple of ETFs in the United States. 
Um, so the good news is outside of the energy sector, the, the credit markets are really live and well. So that's really important in terms of keeping liquidity flowing to, to the world. Um, the other point I want to make is the governments have forced the lockdown so that they're going to they're be really reticent and reluctant to pull away the stimulus um, anytime early. Um, so the positive side that I'm looking at, um, because it's important that we remain, you know, there are some positives, is that I think what's going to happen is that as the world is gradually unlocked, a lot of the stimulus is actually going to physically hit the dirt. So people are going to receive their paychecks, they're going to receive their backdated JobKeeper programs, um, they're going to receive some cash in, the, in, the, in their bank accounts, and there's going to be this big pent-up short-term demand uh, as people get back into gear. Um, and my other optimistic note is that the Roaring Twenties in the 1920s occurred after the Spanish um, influenza pandemic. So are we going to do 100 years later a short-term version of the Roaring Twenties, but this time in the 2020s? Um, so net, net it all out, um, few triggers that we need to be very watchful of, which everyone can watch. So watch the VIX. Um, so that's the measure of index volatility uh, in the United States. It needs to sort of do some work around current levels, around 50, um, to really get the sort of people's sentiment uh, sorted out. Um, watch the Aussie dollar. Um, that's a really important global barometer of, of growth. And you've seen the Aussie dollar crash into 56 cents um, just uh, at the end of March. We're now back up to 62, 63, and seem, seemingly holding that pattern. Um, Watch your credit spreads. Again, you can see those on the uh, RBA website. Um, in terms of de determining people's risk around corporate balance sheets. So that's what they're really looking at. That's all looking at, is this a solvency crisis or is it just a liquidity and evaluation crisis? So those are sort of three really big macro things that you can keep an eye on. Uh, and then when it comes down to the individual companies, um, I, I really like companies that are facing China um, because if there's one economy in the world that is going to be able to manage itself, it will just do whatever it needs to do, whenever it wants, however it wants, wherever it wants, it's going to be China. So uh, I think, you know, the bulk commodity producers, I suspect, are, you know, again, from a momentum play, are they, question mark, careful not to give any advice here, but just as a concept, are they actually going to be a space where people go, if my banks are cutting their dividends and my bank earnings are really under pressure, do the bulk commodity producers, which have got really strong balance sheets and a seemingly stable demand and a price for their assets, become your sort of dividend yield hunting ground, question mark. Um, so these are all the sort of issues that we're, we're looking at um, in terms of, 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 the, of the overall market. Um, as I wrote in my first note at the time, um, I reckon we are sort of 75, 85% of the way there. I still believe that. Um, but what we need to do now is just do a, a lot of digestion um, after the 25% bounce off the bottom. We need to really digest exactly what's going on in terms of what are the earnings going to be like. Um, a PE multiple is a bit curious because what's the E? Um, good question, no idea. Um, you've got companies cutting their dividends, etc. So there's all sorts of issues that need to be digested in the short term. So I think the markets are going to be pretty volatile and probably not going very far with a slight downward bias in the very short term. However, 
never waste a good crisis. And that's exactly when you can start to get tactical because if good quality stocks just get belted because some fund is liquidating, some ETF blows up, some mandate is moved, um, then, then these are the really good buying opportunities um, because I have a sneaking suspicion that in 12 months time, you're gonna be saying, if only, if only I hadn't done something uh, in, in the bottom of the crisis. It'll feel very lonely, it'll feel very scary, and it'll feel very odd. Um, but ironically, sometimes that's more the best time to, um, to, to buy or to restructure your portfolios. And I'm just conscious um, that maybe it might be time, Will, for a couple of questions. Here comes Will. Thank you, Harry. Look, that was fantastic. Um, yes, if anyone's got any questions, could you please uh, go down into the toolbar at the very bottom and type them in? And we've got one from Stuart Wills, um, straight out. Um, if the traditional Australian stocks that form the backbone of many portfolios, such as banks, become less attractive, as you point out, do you expect that superannuation funds and private investors will increasingly look to international companies via stock picker funds or conviction management rather than index funds? Um, two parts to that question, offshore or stock pickers versus index. Yep. Um, first of all, I, I'm ironically, I, I come from the UK. Um, I'm a huge fan of Australia in terms of its market performance. Um, I noticed the other day that Credit Suisse came out with the the, the latest version of uh, the really, really long-term analysis of markets, um, which they started since 1900. Um, so they've now got 120 years of data. And yes, Australia is still the number one stock market in both US dollars and local currency terms. Um, so that's the first observation. Um, the, the second observation is it's stock picking versus index. Um, I think stock picking versus index is, is a classic cycle. I never forget the index funds in Japan peaked out in November 1989. December the 14th, 1989 was the absolute peak in the index. It then is now off 75%. So do you really want an index fund in that environment? No. Um, we've had the sort of the, the, the crazy pillaging and lambasting of active fund managers in the period up until June 2019. Um, I think that's now sort of stopped because index funds are basically just being dragged around by the index, surprise, surprise. Um, going offshore, onshore, um, so, so, so basically sort of answering that question and saying, yeah, I would sort of go more active going forward at the moment than indexed. Um, and the only thing I always say to people when they go offshore is you really need to be focusing on the capital gain argument just because the yield um, here is so much more advantageous uh, than if you go offshore. And of course, you've got the currency. So my view is that the currency has bottomed. Okay, so I, if, you, if you think the currency is going to 40 cents, then I can almost put my finger on and say that US, sorry, not US, global equities will be way lower than they are today because it will tell you that the world has basically fallen off a cliff. So I think if the world recovers, the Aussie dollar is gonna go back up to 75. And therefore, if you do go offshore, you need to be hedged. Um, so I think does that hopefully answer the question. It does. Thank you. Um, Carolyn's asking, what major reforms, including tax, do you believe might be adopted by the Australian government? Okay. Um, th this is how do we pay for the, for the, for the stimulus? Um, and this is actually, 
I am no tax expert and I'm really conscious this is just my personal opinion and it's just a view. Um, so I think first of all, if I was sitting in government as a policy setter, I'd be absolutely after uh, a change to the GST and I'd be absolutely after a change to land tax and basically putting land tax on all residencies, including your primary residence. And the way they'll do it is they'll say, okay, if your primary residence has primary residence has a rateable value above X, you pay X per annum, so on and so forth. Uh, and the third issue, which is the really spooky one, which is a English person, you know, well used to is inheritance tax. Because I have a sneaky suspicion that inheritance tax will start to float back onto the scene. Um, and so those are the sort of three areas that I think you're going to see immediate um, for the first two particularly, not so much the inheritance tax, you're going to see a change in attitude because we need to pay for this. Um, and, and just a quick reminder, uh, in the Great Depression, the top rate of tax in the US was 87.5%. And, and I can remember Jim Callahan going to the national TV to do a, a, a national um, uh, speech uh, talking, telling the population that the UK was bankrupt. We borrowed 25 billion from the IMF, and at the time, Dad was paying 98p in the unearned pound. So any interest income, dividend income, um, was taxed at 98p in the pound. Um, the top rate of tax was 60%, and there was a surcharge tax over that if you earned more than X, and I can't remember what X was. So history doesn't repeat, it definitely rhymes. Taxes are going up um, in a variety of ways in the next five years. Uh, Richard's asking, there's been much concern recently about the strategic oil reserve in Australia. Given the recent problems with global supply chains in oil, is, is now the time to address this issue? Um, well, no, because if you can buy it for zero, then you, you know, why do you need a strategic reserve? You just buy it from other people. Perfect. You don't want to be holding the stuff. You want to be able to buy it. Um, I think the biggest issue for us is, of course, we're big, big gas producers. So again, in a crisis, if things get really tight, the governments will step in and say to the gas producers, you've got to swing much more of your gas to the domestic environment. Um, and again, if, yeah, if we're buying stuff from overseas, um, then um, clearly there is a risk, there's an energy risk. Um, and if you have capability of building strategic reserves, clearly now is the time to do it. And I suspect the Chinese are going to be busy, 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 busy mopping up as much oil as they can get their hands on. So I'm not sure how we are going to do it outside of building more and more tanks. Um, uh, but we've clearly got enough gas assets to probably in the short term offset any oil crisis. Thank you. Look, Sam's asking, it's, this is a very specific question. Uranium appears to be having a run. So you've had mine closures from COVID-19, um, yeah. supply shortages, therefore, as a result of that. So the spots climbed to 32, yeah. 33 pound. Yeah. So do you see the, this is the next catalyst for bull run in this commodity? Um, really, uh, clearly the mine closures have just caused a spike in the short term in the uranium price, as, a, as opposed to any fundamental supply demand going on in terms of who, what is powering your um, electricity supply. Um, personally, I think nuclear is absolutely part of the overall supply option that needs to be very carefully considered both here and elsewhere. Um, so, but fundamentally, I think it's, a, it's one of those issues that has got so much political and emotional 
um, attachment to it that is going to be hard to see how here is going to change in a hurry. Uh, clearly, the Chinese have been busy, busy, busy putting in nuclear power stations, and the French are always as happy as a lark because 80% of their power is from nuclear. But, but I, don't, I wouldn't be buying uranium stocks on the back of um, a fundamental shift in energy uh, uh, production because I don't think that's the case. It's just mines have closed, so shortage of supply. Yeah. Um, Michael Noakes has asked a, a very good question. So how do you view infrastructure and private equity investments in this new environment? <laughs> okay. All right. So, so Infrastructure assets uh, have clearly been enormous beneficiaries of a 40-year bull market. Is it 40 years? No, 30 years bull market in, in interest rates. In other words, interest rates have fallen, 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 fallen. So um, if, you look, if you take Transurban as a classic case, it's what they call a tripled staple security. Um, and it's a trust structure. So what that basically means is that they must always pay out all their earnings. So the only way they can pay down debt is by basically having a new equity issuance or presumably by selling an asset. Um, so if you look at the debt structure of Transurban, it just goes up and up and up and up and up in time, in, in, over time in terms of its volume of debt. Um, so technically speaking, it is fantastically geared, but of course it's got a semi-guaranteed cash flow. Um, so they've been massive beneficiaries over this, over this period of ever falling rates. The thing about it today is that rates have fallen and they can't go any lower. I mean, you, you can get close to zero for sure, but at the end of the day, um, some stuff might go negative. So they need a bit more um, value, if you like, extraction from lower rates, but I think the vast bulk of it has been achieved. So then you've got to start looking about, okay, what is the cash flow going to look like going forward on some of these assets? Road assets, I'm pretty happy with. Um, airline assets, not so happy um, in the sense of what's going to happen to travel long, longer term. Uh, as, so, yeah, I think the big money that has been made in infrastructure has been made. I'm not that bullish on it going forward. Um, when it comes to private equity, um, you know, private equity covers way more than just infrastructure. Um, so I think personally, again, if I was a a sort of policy setter in Australia, I would actually be mandating that the big super funds here have a mandatory exposure to venture capital, private equity that is Australian based. We have a fantastic track record of invention. So anybody that can lobby the government on this basis, please do. Um, uh, so, because if we do that, so for example, we've got about just under a trillion dollars invested into, into, into investment property not your primary residence, this is investment property. Can you imagine if we took 20% of that and put that to work in PE and venture private equity and VC in this country for Australian born and bred enterprises, et cetera. Um, I think you know, the, the Israelis did this in the, in the early 80s and today they have the, the, the $85 billion a year of high tech exports. Um, we need to get onto that bandwagon and we need to do it now. So. Um, I think, yeah, again, you know, what's going to happen to private equity? I think the private equity will survive. There'll be clearly some accidents, um, but we need it more and more because I think like the banks, et cetera, are just going to be stuck in the really slow lane for a very long time in terms of investments. 
Good, look, thank you. Um, that's it for the questions. Um, and thank you everybody for asking the questions you did, but, but particularly Harry, um, your participation today, um, you know, and, and insights, they were invaluable. We really appreciate it. Um, thank you everybody for attending. Um, one last thing is uh, an invitation will be going out this afternoon for our next webinar. Um, so thank you everyone. Uh, again, thank you, Harry, and have a great remainder of the day. Yeah, stay safe everyone. And thank you for listening. I think I know. Leave the meeting. Thanks, Will. Yeah.